We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Jordan, welcome to the pod. I'm gonna thanks for having me. To, I'm gonna pass it over to Packy to to kick it off with our favorite opening question. All right, Jordan, get ready. So we kick it off with a tough one, which is in the year 2050. What do you think the pie chart of the energy sources in the U.S. is going to look like? Oh man, it's really difficult to know. But one thing I'm certain about is it's not predetermined. It's a policy question. It's an engineering question, and I think we should really think hard about what kind of world we want to live in 2050 and what needs to be true for us to get there. So, here's how I would think about it. I think we should want to live in a world where global standard of living is at least equivalent to an American standard of living today, and we also need to decarbonize in the process of that. There's a really good book on this topic, actually.、Uh, Why nuclear power has been a flop. So, a top recommendation for anyone getting into nuclear for the first time. But the book goes through this exercise, and the conclusion is we need something like 10x the the energy that we have today. What needs to be true for us to do that? We're going to need to deploy a lot more energy at at speed and at scale. And there's obviously the grid to think about, but I think in order to do that, there's going to be a lot more behind the meter as well. So there's this this obvious trend today of deploying solar behind the meter, but Solar has some, like any energy source, solar has advantages and disadvantages. It's really awesome when you put it on your roof and there's no incremental land requirements and you just get to take advantage of really cheap energy. But、uh, when you look at scaled industrial activity where energy density really matters and 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 land use starts to matter,、um, solar really breaks down behind the meter. So this is, I think, in, in nuclear, the promise of micro reactors. Right? You could put them. Anywhere you have high energy density and you can deploy megawatts、uh, quickly. That's what we should be striving towards. And going back to the grid,、uh, I think there's going to be a lot more solar on the grid as well. But if we want to keep our critical infrastructure running and we want to be able to use the, the grid for industrial activity, we're also still going to need a lot more nuclear. And it is the absolute best form of, of, of baseload power out there. And then I think there's this important question of what happens to, to fossil fuels as well. And I think it's exceptionally hard to entirely phase out fossil fuels by 2050 if we're trying to grow global standard of living and also grow the world's population. And so, we should be thinking a lot about how we can make fossil fuels as close to net zero as possible.、Um, I think both hydrogen and nuclear have a potential role to play in that, and and, and solar as well.、Uh, I think the other market to consider is is, is power in space. So that's. You are almost entirely dependent on solar today, but by 2050, we should really be doing some kind of scaled economic activity on on the moon, and hopefully on Mars as well. But certainly on the moon, and it's exceedingly hard to do that with nuclear not being part of that mix. Also, when you think about any anything, hundreds of kilowatts in space, megawatts in space, it really has to be nuclear. So we figure out some kind of large scale power beaming solutions. Nuclear is the best way to do that. Essentially, we need a lot more of everything,、uh, but the but nuclear is the one that stands out here in that. Uh, it's the one that's stagnating, 
And so that's a problem that I, I care deeply about, figuring out uh, how to fix stagnation in nuclear. So I'll take to the next question, hopefully a little more of a softball than the last one. Um, but how did you get into nuclear? And, um, yeah. and then how did that take you into starting in Terry's? Yeah, so it, it really goes back to childhood for me. Uh, I've always been passionate about astronomy and astrophysics. As a teenager, I read a bunch of Robert Zubrin's books. Nuclear just has such an important role to play. It's something I've always thought about. Just I remember my mom and my grandmother buying me science books as a kid. And then I grew up in Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Virginia, that area, Hampton Roads, as people call it. Our power consumption was largely nuclear from the Surrey power plant. And it's also where the Newport New Shipyard is, which is uh, where we build our nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. And it's one of two shipyards in the U.S. where we build our nuclear-powered submarines. So uh, I had the opportunity to work there multiple years when I was 19, 20 on new construction of nuclear-powered submarines and overhaul of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. And then in, in college, I studied physics and systems engineering. And I, I think it was my sophomore or junior year of college, I actually wrote an engineering report on light water reactor designs. And it was a root cause analysis of what went wrong in Fukushima. So in short, I've always had an interest in nuclear, but frankly, I never pursued it as a career because going back into 2010, 2011, after post Fukushima, it was just a dead industry. And the shipyard where I'm from, I think it was paying engineers something like $50,000 a year starting salaries. And this is when the mobile web was the hot thing. And you could make two and a half times that by going into software engineering. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So you get into software engineering and then you find yourself back. And maybe this kind of trans transitions us into a next question here, which is tell us a little bit about the approach of Antares, why this exact form factor or customer for nuclear, there's obviously a bunch of paths you could go down if you're thinking about starting some sort of small nuclear company. So maybe tell us a little bit more about, about the Antares approach and why you decided to go that path. Yeah, so we're building micro reactors for military applications. And I think one thing that differentiates us from other players in the micro reactor space is I would say we really lean into the DOD first approach, whereas others are more of dual use focusing on commercial and, and military simultaneously. And the reason I believe in that approach is because I think the writing is on the wall at this point. The military is going to be the first and largest at scale adopter of micro reactors. So uh, this is really motivated by a shift in our military's focus to, to, to the Indo-Pacific region. We have great power conflict and a lot of our most important technologies, our ability to scale their deployment, it really comes down to a question of energy capacity. And so it's forcing people to think more creatively about how do we get what the military calls operational energy into the field where we need it at the times that we need it. And so there's four ongoing projects in the military currently that are focused on micro reactor deployment. One is an installation project. So it was just one by Oakla recently. So a, a micro reactor at a, on a military base. One is nuclear propulsion. So using nuclear reactors to power rockets. Uh, another is focused on space nuclear power. So powering satellites in cislunar orbit. And then finally, there's Project Pele, which is a terrestrial microreactor between one to five megawatts. And I think there's going to be a lot more to come in this space over the coming years. And the DoD is just frankly moving a lot faster than the commercial markets on the adoption of micronuclear. So I think it's a really exciting place to start. Thanks for listening so far. 
Hang on, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. What's the speed difference working with the DoD than trying to just do this commercially? Like, How fast can you go from you have a design ready to go to actually getting the thing implemented? Yeah, the real answer is I think in the commercial markets, no one actually knows how how long it's going to take to deploy nuclear right now. Um, Whereas in the DoD, we actually have real data points. So Project Pele is going to be deployed and tested on something like a four-year development timeline. And there's also the Marvel project at Idaho National Lab, which is also a four, four and a half year development timeline. And these are projects are largely on track, on budget. Uh, they're being done for tens of millions of dollars to, to, to low hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, whereas we were used to thinking about nuclear as billion dollar projects, right? So stark contrast between what's happening in the military and what's happening in the commercial sector right now. I think the military, whether they think about it this way or not, they have an opportunity to really crack the commercial market. So maybe an analogy here is we think about the the semiconductor industry in the 1950s. It's really bootstrapped by military demand. My hope, and certainly the way I think it could turn out, is it's very similar for the microreactor industry. It starts with military demand, and we get these real-world examples of, of deploying them, getting utility out of them, gathering empirical operating data for regulatory purposes, and that's ultimately what unlocks the commercial markets. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable how frequently that story comes up. We've talked about it actually a little bit even on one of the episodes that, that we recorded uh, last week. But it is cool to see the difference there too, right? Like there's in, in the semiconductor case, it's just yeah. we need to bring the cost of these chips down and we're a buyer who like really desperately needs this stuff. And so we'll provide that initial demand before commercial gets there. Is there some coming down the cost curve on microreactors as well? Or do you really think it is the regulatory showing this can be done, showing that it can be done fast. And so kind of eliminating excuses in the commercial sector by seeing how the military does it. What do you think are the different aspects of the example the military can set? So the military market and the commercial markets are very different in terms of how the end buyer thinks about energy, right? When the military talks about what they call operational energy, which is getting energy into tactical environments where there is no grid, there are no existing supply chains. There's not a gas station you can just go to and fill up a tank, right? You have to invent all of that from scratch. They are largely, the purpose of that energy is to unlock some kind of capability that would otherwise not be possible. And at times they pay prices as high as $10 a kilowatt hour or $400 a gallon for diesel fuel. And maybe even in more common scenarios, it's still something like $7 a gallon, things as high as a dollar a kilowatt hour, right? So very much a non-commodity market. Whereas in the commercial sector, energy is effectively a commodity. You just try to get it as cheap as you possibly can. And so for something capital intensive like nuclear, a really hard place to start out building a product in my view. That said, 
But you even look at Hawaii, you look at what the average electricity consumer is paying for electricity in their home. It's something like 40 cents a kilowatt hour. And I think if we can solve some of the regulatory challenges with micro reactors, which really amounts to, I think, just answering questions about how these are going to be regulated that, that are not answered today. Micro reactors can totally get down to 40 cents a kilowatt hour. And I think actually there's a path for them to get cheaper. Large parts of the world pay as high as 60 cents a kilowatt hour. Even in, in northern Arctic remote communities, stuff as high as 80 cents a kilowatt hour, which numbers of numerous micro reactor designs are competitive with that today. Most micro reactors rely on high assay, low enriched uranium, and the trice of fuel form factor is also the most common fuel form factor. There's obvious benefits, non-proliferation, safety being the main ones. Uh, the downside is it's an extremely expensive fuel form factor to, to manufacture. The, I think, first I'll say micro reactors, it's a very different cost breakdown compared to grid scale nuclear. In grid scale <clears throat> nuclear, I think fuel is something like single digit percentages of the total cost of operating a power plant. Whereas in micro reactors can be anywhere between let's say 40% and maybe even 65% fuel is, 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 is um, just the largest. If you add up the uranium itself, plus manufacturing the fuel form factor, it's the largest single cost line item. And so if you can get fuel manufacturing down by a factor of five, uh, you can start to see how these things become a lot more cost competitive. And it's also a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here where we have commercial manufacturers of Triso in the U.S. now, and largely it's a question of scaling demand in order to get those prices down further. You're new to nuclear, Jordan. How do you think about learning what it takes to build a nuclear reactor? What type of team are you bringing together to actually go and start building your first prototype? Awesome question. Um, one thing I think about, and I hope that we will prove out within Terry's is nuclear is fundamentally, it's largely a subset of mechanical engineering with some nuclear physics underpinning it. And so my message to every engineer interested in contributing to nuclear, it's totally a skill set that can be learned and you can learn it fast. And you may be an unfortunate side effect of our regulatory stance for half a century now has been, there hasn't been a ton of change in the nuclear industry and in the nuclear engineering fundamentals since the sixties and seventies. And so there's not a huge body of work that one has to go catch up on. So for me, I just started picking up the textbooks. I've got a couple on my desk right now. This is principles of nuclear reactor engineering. And I think this copy of this book is from, I think 1958, if we uh, cracked it open and looked inside of it. And uh, I've got a couple other on my others on my desk here. And I picked up my university physics books from, from college, the first three physics courses that you take in a physics program and most engineering programs you take it to. I got some books on material science and I really just started diving in. And so I think as a society in a nuclear industry, I actually think it's deeply important that we bring in people from other backgrounds, right? You think about the aerospace industry or a SpaceX, for instance, deep culture of testing and iterating very fast, right? Lots of experience with implementing regulated quality programs while still continuing to ship. And the nuclear industry, unfortunately, just doesn't have that, right? You, you, you look at the Yucca Mountain project, there's people who have had to spend their entire career decades working on that, and it's still not live. 
And so I actually think it's really important that we find ways to bring people from other backgrounds into the nuclear industry. So my message would be like, it's totally something that people can pick up if you have an interest in it. Um, you can go you know, from hobby to practice. And the other way I would encourage thinking about it is as you look at nuclear reactor designs, um, paper reactor designs, they all have their nuances, but the subsystems and the components are, are largely the same. Every reactor has a core design and a fuel form factor. Some are moderated, some aren't, but a moderator is a way that you slow down neutrons to increase the other reactivity in a reactor. They have some mechanism of heat transfer, whether that's a, a, a circulating coolant or s some other kind of component. And then they all have some method of power conversion. And as it stands today, there's for, for most of these, there's a, a pretty finite number of choices out there. And so e each of those subsystems, they have their own mechanical engineering discipline that, that goes into them as well. Once you start thinking about it in this way, you can pick the parts where you choose to go deeper on and, and, and learn more. Thanks for listening so far. Hang on, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. In terms of founding the company, going from software to then building a company in nuclear, what are some of the similarities that you've seen? And then what are some of the areas that have been most different so far? Yeah, so the things that are most similar, capitalizing a company and getting it off the ground and building an organization, it's, it's really the same regardless of if it's software or hardware or really anything, right? You need to get a lawyer, you need to incorporate, you need to set up a bank account. And a lot of the early work just follows from that. We have a very maybe hyper-specific sales process, which is we're focused on the DoD. And so that has some intricacies that we can get into in more detail. But I would say it largely looks the same for any defense tech startup, the, the, the path that you take to market. And then on the hardware side, there's a... So nuclear has its own quality standard in QA1. Um, I've been told by people that it actually looks a lot like the aerospace industry's quality standard, but it's pretty unique to nuclear. Uh, the way you go about designing an early stage uh, project, though, is, is pretty similar to doing something in aerospace. We do systems engineering, so anyone who's worked at a SpaceX or uh, even a government contractor would be familiar with that methodology. Take power conversion, for instance. Uh, we work with turbo machinery. Um, it's also something that would be very familiar to people in the aerospace industry. So. There's a lot of similarities to other industries. Uh, I would say the biggest difference between nuclear and software, it really comes down to the pace of iteration, right? You just can't, uh, even things like simulating the behavior of your core neutronics, it just doesn't, it just doesn't move as fast as, as something in software where you can make a change and um, push it on a branch to customers the next day and see how it works. So you just don't get the same speed of feedback cycles that you get in software. On the, the capital raising side, what's it been like talking to investors about nuclear? Do you think there's understanding the space now? Do you target nuclear specific investors? Is it a, an area of more general interest now that American dynamism and deep tech companies are becoming more popular? Like what's that whole process like? So it's certainly an area of interest for even generalist VC funds. We found a lot of the larger brand name funds have actually invested in developing a thesis in this space. And so when we went out and, and did our most recent fundraise, we were actually able to narrow down who we spoke to people who have already spent some time thinking about this, which is, which is awesome because learning from scratch or having to go through that education process, it can take a long time, but we had the benefit of being able to talk to a lot of investors that have already spent time in thinking about this and thinking about the, uh, the market opportunity. I'll, I can take the next one here. 
we talked a little bit about selling to the DOD. I want to back up a little bit to just broader. What do you see as the biggest risks to Antares and how are you thinking about mitigating those? You know, today, I actually think the largest risk that we have is it comes down to credibility, right? We're going into an industry where everyone else that's been successful to date is almost a century old, or at the very least, half a century old. You think about the Westinghouses of the world, the BWXTs of the world, and we have to rapidly build credibility. It's also the kind of thing where the existing players have done this for years without any kind of material disclose safety incident. So you hear the adage, what's it? No one ever got fired going with IBM. And it's sort of the same thing here. And I think the credibility really comes from two things. One is the engineering side, just getting to a point where we have hardware that validates our design as soon as possible. And so it's going to be a big focus for us in the coming 12 months. And aside from getting us closer to a, a working unit and having a prototype, it also just shows that the, the DoD shows the end customer that we're capable of building this. And then the other piece is just continuing to show up, right? One of the things that I make a point of in, in our culture here at Antares, and I actually, I, I got this from an organization I worked in when I was in the White House back in 2017, is uh, go where the work is. It's, it's one of our values. And I think that's so important for the credibility piece because the existing players in the space they might not be willing to just hop on a plane and go meet a general or a colonel in person uh, to the same degree we are. That's one of the advantages that you have as a startup is you can just find ways to uh, outwork everyone else in the early stages. And so those meetings go so much better when you meet someone in person. You know, you imagine a lot of these people uh, in positions where they're allocating a budget inside of the government. They constantly have companies that they've never heard of reaching out to them over email, trying to schedule meetings with them. They have no idea who you are. You get on a Microsoft Teams meeting. And um, I think there's just something about that kind of interaction where it's easy for people to, whether it's conscious or subconscious, default to skepticism, right? But when you hop, are willing to hop on a plane and, and just the act of booking a ticket and getting on a plane and going to meet someone in their place of work, I think is a sign of seriousness in and of itself. So we think a lot about these things. What are the things we can do that we have control over every single day that just, if we keep doing it, just build more and more credibility. I, th I think that's our biggest near-term risk. That's super cool. I, I love the idea of going where the work is. Are there other kind of things in, inside of the culture that you want to build into the company from the early days? Yeah, another one is systems thinking. So I mentioned, I mentioned that, that we practice systems engineering, but from a cultural standpoint, it really goes beyond that. The I, I'd say first principles thinking is not enough when it comes to nuclear, because if you just purely apply a first principles lens to nuclear, it's just like such an obvious, obviously good idea. We should be doing it. We should be doing more nuclear. But why hasn't it happened for half a century at this point? There's clearly deeper systematic things at play here. And when you really start to peel back the layers on that, you realize it's a complex stakeholder relationship, there's competing interests, there's perverse incentives, and you really have to think through those kind of things before you can be successful. So it's another cultural value that we try to institute here. One other topic here, shifting gears a little bit. This is maybe another risk to the business, but supply chain, this is a nascent industry. There's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. You see this a lot in nuclear fuel, for example. How do you see, how do you see the supply chain 
risk uh, playing out here? And, and again, how are you thinking about mitigating some of that? Yeah. So fuel is, is obviously the tough one. So we'll come back to that. But this kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where um, reactors, they have their critical subsystems. And the good thing for a lot of these, especially with micro reactors, is there are existing vendors inside of the U.S. that produce a lot of a lot of what you need at scale. For instance, in our reactor design, uh, we work with heat pipes for heat transfer, um, and we have a vendor partner that we work with for that. Um, we use the machinery for power conversion. We also have a vendor partner that we work with um, for that. And so, partnerships, supply chain partnerships, are are critical. And this is not unlike uh, SpaceX, for instance, where you have a complex network of vendors throughout the U.S. And a lot of what engineers do is actually go on site to the vendor site for, for quality assurance purposes, right? But fuel is, is clearly the tough one. So there's been a lot of development in the last few years on, on triso fuels. We now have at least one at-scale manufacturer inside of the U.S. and two more that should be coming online in the coming years. And uh, it's incredibly expensive today, and it is just like you mentioned, it's a chicken and egg problem. I think as demand increases for this fuel, prices can come down. So it's really a, it's a capex expenditure problem, right? These manufacturers have to invest a lot of capital up front to build out that manufacturing capability, and you can't really lower prices until there's scaled demand as a result of that. Now, Halu is a is another question, and I think that. Um, Halo is high assay, low enriched uraniums. Unlike uranium that goes in grid scale light water reactors that's enriched to a couple percentage points, Halo is enriched to a, a maximum of uh, 20%, 19.75% is what you commonly see. There is at least one manufacturer in the US now that um, has been licensed to en enrich Halo. Um, but beyond that, we don't have a domestic supply chain currently. So there's a, there's policy work that has to be done here. Um, I think we should be trying to think about uh, a nuclear, um, a North American supply chain broadly. Like, how do we access a Canadian supply chain as well, and um, how do how do both countries benefit economically from advancements in nuclear? And certainly, that's the view of most nuclear developers in the U.S. They want to deploy in Canada alongside of the U.S., right? And then this is also an area where I think that the DoD. Uh, has an advantage and can also help bootstrap the commercial markets. So the DOD has its own full stack supply chain for nuclear that supports the Marine and carrier, the, the nuclear Navy, um, essentially. And going back to what we were saying earlier about the DOD being the first that's, I would like to see them step up here, be creative and figure out how to unlock this supply chain for Halo. And it was two weeks ago. There's a press release where we started to see a little bit of this. So there's a company that was awarded a $47 million contract to downblend highly enriched uranium scraps from the Navy program into HALU to support the DOD's needs. So I hope that we'll see more of that in the coming years. And certainly our view is these kind of military applications will bring micro reactors to market and there will be initial uh, an initial supply of HALU for that. And then the demand for micro reactors, the demand for triso fuel increase in the commercial markets as we see more mature micro reactor developers. So that's how I see it playing out. The other thing that we think about is how do we have a design that allows us to come to market as quickly as possible? Because getting access to Halo right now is effectively 
a queue, you know, as it comes online in the coming years, demonstrations at Idaho National Lab will be supported. But there are currently more people who want to develop micro reactors than there will be fuel to fuel them all at the scale that they want to be able to deploy them. And so we think it's largely a question of getting to market as quickly as possible uh, will unlock supply to Halo. Our approach to design is we try to reduce technical risk as much as possible. We use designs that have heritage in other programs, have well-understood components with commercial supply chains behind them, something that we could essentially build as quickly as possible. And you know, for me, that's motivated by a belief that enduring advantages in nuclear, competitive advantages, actually come from the manufacturing capabilities you, you, you build up, not necessarily unique things about your design itself. A great example of this, this was about a month ago, there was DARPA awarded a nuclear thermal propulsion contract to a company, BWXT. And it was a $300 million contract. And I think BWXT is the only company in the U.S. that has a hydrogen furnace that they can test nuclear fuel in. And they also are able to produce the fuel, right? So it's these kind of manufacturing capabilities that, that give you the right to win in these different sectors. And perhaps counterintuitively, I think building that up for a nuclear startup, uh, I think it actually just comes from getting to market as quickly as possible. You have to be licensed to handle nuclear fuel. You have to have some sort of product you're able to sell to bootstrap your manufacturing base, and then it all goes from there. So that's how we think about it. That's cool. When you're thinking about speed and you say that the next 12 months are going to be about getting hardware built, we're trying a lot in this podcast to figure out like, how do you bring the timeline of building more nuclear and getting more nuclear on the grid or getting more nuclear to where it's needed out there? Even in that fast case that we're talking about here, could you walk us through just what the different timing pieces are and like what is happening in those 12 months? What happens after that? Just to get a, an example of what it looks like, even in a good case. Yeah. Our focus is on building what we call an electrically heated surrogate prototype. So the thinking there is um, maybe to use a software analogy, what does the MVP of a micro reactor look like? So you need to be able to test your power conversion, your heat transfer, and the properties of, of your core. But it would take a really long time to do that in a nuclear way because you would have to get access to fuel up front. You'd have to be able to do it in an, an environment where you're already sited and, and you're licensed to do that work. So instead of having to rely on uranium to create the heat that powers the rest of the, the component systems, we use an electrical heat source. So heat up a graphite block, which then heats up a sodium heat pipe, which is then heating up a working fluid that would go through turbo machinery. So that's our focus, and that de-risks the thermodynamic properties of the end, of the system end to end, and it allows you to gather real-world data on the performance of your reactor that you can then you can use that to identify the delta between that your real-world data and your simulated data, right? So the other the other kind of key milestone along the way is you need to do a first of a kind fuel demonstration, right? How do you do this with fuel, right? This also goes into the why now uh, of why I think it's an exciting time to be building a nuclear. We now have a place to do that inside of the U.S., which is Idaho National Lab. They have a microreactor test bed, which that has not been true since 1967. I think the last new reactor tested at Idaho National Labs was in the 19. I can't remember if it's the Marvel reactor or the Project Pele reactor that the DOD is building. I can't remember which one's going to be first, but um, they're going to be pretty close in terms of their their demonstration timelines, and so. We'll start to see that happening in 2024 and 2025. 
Um, so that's the next key milestone for us, just doing a first-of-a-kind demonstration, gathering the regulatory data that will allow us to go through a DOE authorization. Um, and then we're also ready to go deeper on regulatory engagement with our DOD stakeholders as well. I was actually just going to head in that direction next. You you mentioned regulatory. How do you think about the need for Antares to engage both with regulatory bodies, in this case, not just the NRC, which regulates the civilian grid, but perhaps some of the DOD regulatory bodies, as well as broader government entities, whether it's Congress, whether it's the DOD, DOE, rather. What are those various pieces and how do you need to engage there? Yeah, great question. We want to be engaging from the very beginning, right? We, we interact with what's called the GAIN program through the DOE and the national labs. It's Gateway for Advanced Innovation in Nuclear. And their mission is really focused on helping new reactor developers interface with these different bodies throughout the, the federal government. And then on the DOD side, it's a really interesting time because the DOD is figuring out what their regulatory stance is going to be on micronuclear as they start to deploy this. And so it's interesting to, to think about right now, it's broken down by services, right? The Navy is by far the most mature. They've operated something like 500 reactor cores in total, and they have a hundred operating today. And they, through what is essentially a partnership with the Department of Energy, are able to regulate their own nuclear developments. Uh, and then you have the Army, which has the Army Reactors Office. They've operated something like nine reactors, and they currently have one reactor operating at White Sands, New Mexico, that I believe is used to simulate nuclear weapons effects. And they've also historically self-regulated these projects. The Air Force, on the other hand, which I would argue the Air Force would benefit heavily from nuclear power given their mission over the coming years, they don't have a regulatory body for nuclear energy today. And there's a lot of motivation inside of the DOD across both the Pentagon, the military services, and we even see stuff. You can look for it inside of the National Defense Authorization Act drafts. There's um, stuff coming out of Congress and from the White House as well, trying to help the, the Department of Defense go in the direction of, of having more regulatory clarity. And so what I would like to see happen long-term is a unified regulatory body that all of the services can tap into. Um, services meaning branches of the military. And the reason I think this is so important, what we've learned in our time engaging with the military on this, nuclear is actually very popular. It's There's tons of people that want it for all different kinds of use cases. We've heard everything from putting nuclear power in space to power satellites to using small nuclear reactors to create clean drinking water through through desalination or atmospheric extraction. And we've heard that from civil engineers in the Air Force where figuring out where the clean drinking water comes from, that's their core job that they have to solve anytime a forward operating position is set up. We think it's, what I would say is, we, what we really have not seen are true detractors, like people that are anti-nuclear. The, the way I would describe the um, the position of people that have concerns about nuclear it's, we, we want the electrons, we just don't want to deal with the neutrons, right? They don't want to deal with all of the hard engineering challenges that come with nuclear. And I think maybe the best, and I think it's a fair pushback that we've heard, is we don't want to go, we, the Air Force, don't want to go through everything that the Navy had to go through, where you spend decades training a nuclear workforce to operate reactors and 
figuring out a regulatory body from scratch. I'd actually really encourage people to look at the history of the nuclear Navy and Hyman Rickover and just see all of the sacrifice that had to be made for, for that, that program to be realized. Knowing that different military branches don't want to go through that, I think what most people would want and what we certainly want to see is a unified body across the military branches for micronuclear. My, my favorite one, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but I'd love a, a kind of more detailed picture when you're thinking about like why you're doing this, which is what does the world look like when we have abundant nuclear energy? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I spend a lot of time thinking about personally. This, the simplest answer is everything becomes cheaper right? An exercise you could go through, what does your household budget look like? And for most of us, we probably spend most of our household budget on a combination of housing, food, and transportation. And so look at all of those, right? If we had abundant, cheap energy, you look at what goes into the raw materials for things like housing or any kind of construction, steel, concrete, these are energy intensive processes, right? Where the cost of energy drives a lot of those prices. Food. Agriculture is the same is the same thing. It's a question of uh, energy and transportation costs, which then gets into the next one, transportation, right? And maybe let's spend a little bit more time on this one. So let's say you pay something like $500 a month for your car, and then that's your car payment, right? Maybe $200 a month or something like that on gasoline, or um, maybe it's a little less if you're charging an electric vehicle. But you quickly see how, well, if the energy costs go down, that let's say you could bring cost of energy down by 90%. So you immediately cut off a large portion of your transportation costs, but then let's work backwards into the raw materials that go into an automobile as well. You drive those down significantly as well. And the another good way to think about this is there's this, it's called the Henry Adams curve. And so it's a plot of our our energy consumption per capita over time. And what I find fascinating about that is we as Americans consume less energy per capita than our grandparents did and the generations before that. So we've one could conclude this is a good thing, right? We've become more energy efficient. But if you look at the curve, historically, it's correlated um, with GDP per capita as well. Uh, so our, our ability to consume energy uh, correlates directly with uh, our wealth, our standard of living. And around the 1970s, we had the the energy shock um, with the crisis with Iran. We also had some changes in monetary policy. GDP per capita growth, when adjusted for inflation, started stagnating. And uh, I would argue our ability to create abundant energy uh, is the single most important thing we can do to get back on that historical growth curve of GDP per capita. The world will be a lot richer. We'll have a, we'll have a much higher standard of living. We, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a fun exercise to just think about what would your life look like if we had double, double the GDP per capita, right? If you were twice as wealthy as you, as you are now and everyone around you was too, right? Some obvious things that, that start to make sense Supersonic travel is a big one too, right? If we can drive down, that's largely a cost of a question of the cost of energy. The business models of vertical farming would work if we had, we could bring down the cost of energy significantly. So even the food that you could eat, regardless of season, starts to change quite a bit too. It has important implications for health, I think also. And uh, I think for young people today, one of the biggest sources of frustration is at the cost of housing. And I, th I actually think in America, the cost of housing, I think birth rates are downstream of that, right? And so if you can bring down all of those costs 
significantly, they start to look a lot more like what they look like in the 60s as a, as a multiple of household income, uh, we would see birth rates grow up as well. Yeah, my argument would be all of these sort of important economic metrics are, are downstream of our ability to consume energy. Amen. I love that answer. <laughs> Amen. Why don't we cool. wrap it there? Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. It was a thank very you. fun conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.